0: Fascism is a branch on a third position tree. Fascism being the Italian expression of third position philosophy. There are many different parties that sprung up in many different countries that are referred to as fascist organizations. But third position being the more accurate term that binds the commonalities between these organizations. Third-position ideals stem from universal philosophical concepts that manifest into material governments that organically grow and adapt to their national surrounding. This is why you will have differences on surface governmental applications between, let us say, for example, Italian Fascism and Spanish Phalangism. While they may differ in aesthetics and procedures, they share the common wellspring philosophy of third position, thus making them unique but comrades at their core. Let us look at the core universal concepts of third position philosophy. First we must understand third position is neither right nor left. There may be parts of third position governments that have aspects that may be in common with certain right-wing or left-wing beliefs, But that is as far as the resemblances go. Third position is created from the realization of the failures of both the right and left. Third position is a collectivist philosophy, meaning united we are stronger. It places the community over the individual. It is anti-materialistic, meaning it puts more value to life than what merely the naked eye can see, it promotes a spirituality, deeper meanings to life outside of just sense experience, being that it puts value in the citizen as a wonderful spiritual being who has untapped potential and therefore is not reduced to mere numbers as man is under the capitalist and communist economic and governmental models. Third position economics is anti-materialistic, therefore it serves as a tool to benefit the individual and the community. Not dogmatic, numerical gods to worship and sacrifice existence for. Man is not valued by his income, but more so by his honor and character. Third position is an idealistic political philosophy, meaning it places grand goals to achieve on the individual and the community. It is also traditionalistic and futuristic, meaning it respects the values of the culture that was the expression of a people's ancestors and their sacrifices, but it also moves forward in technology and science to obtain the goals of the community. Lastly, it is a law and order system, punishing bad behavior, not tolerating subversion, but rather rewarding discipline. These are the core philosophical components that every third position organization shares at their wellspring. Thus this is why it has been confusing for many people to try and define fascism because typically the layman will try to define it by its material components rather than its philosophical core. With that said Let us quickly materialize a hypothetical third position platform to show how the philosophy can and is manifested into reality. Being a collectivist ideology, it must create a common ground among the people to get them to work together and treat each other as somewhat of an extended family. This is created by forming unity. Unity is strongest under homogeneity. Therefore, our hypothetical system would endorse and promote nationalism and depending on the country in question that nationalism can come from either ethnicity as it did in national socialist germany or in religion as it did in legionary romania or shared culture and history and experience as it did in places like spain brazil and italy a country like america would fit the latter examples while a country like sweden would fit in the former, being based around ethnicity. Being anti-materialistic, economics is now made to better the community as a whole. Therefore, education and healthcare would be nationalized. An economic system like syndicalism can be employed where, just for example, we can say profit is divided into three categories for every business. The employer, the employee, and the state. Avoiding division from class warfare and the vultures that seek to amplify division by pitting citizens against each other is obtained by a shortening the gap between the pay differences of the classes b true meritocracy meaning even the ditch diggers kid goes to the finest Ivy League school if he has the aptitude to do so just as the heart surgeons kid is not guaranteed the finest universities because of wealth but ends up where his drive and intelligence takes him. Be that an Ivy League school, a trade school or some other pursuit. C. Now work is not simply to make a company rich while the worker stagnates, but is actually a vital part of the system which in turn benefits you and your community. Therefore work loses its purely material functions of making someone rich and has a deeper meaning of being a vital part in the betterment of yourself, your family, your community, and your nation. Being idealistic, it places grand goals on self and community. And since profit for corporate oligarchies is no longer the main motivation of economics, harmful advertisement that feeds on man's lower instincts are no longer... What is encouraged and advertised are healthy, moral, upstanding people who strive to be their best selves, therefore producing their best results. Potential that goes untapped in most people today, thanks to corporate oligarchies feeding on man's sex drives, gluttonous instincts, and other biological hardwiring that advertisement has learned to tap into. On a macro level. Since individuals can no longer hoard resources, now resources are used for grand goals, say like planet hopping, exploring our universe, or the deepest depths of our ocean. As life is given more value, as we all play our part in trying to answer and contemplate the many mysteries of existence, that currently go largely forgotten about in this current cycle of work to consume, to feed physical urges, repeat until death. Traditional and futuristic, we know what man is and what woman is. Both science and tradition agree here. Religious beliefs are respected, but so is the pursuit of science. Our ethics are maintained and do not change with the times, but our technology does. Scientists are no longer reliant on grants from private corporations serving their own interests, but are well-funded by the community, the nation, because they play a vital role in the advancement in the people as a whole. Law & Order. If you violate laws, you go to work camps and you work yourself free. You learn what it is to be a contributing member of the community. If the crimes are so severe, you receive capital punishment. The madness of today where people are committing random violence against their fellow citizens or molesting the young are no longer tolerated and dealt with in a minimal manner but instead are dealt with in a maximum manner where it is made clear you are not wanted and your life is not worth more than that of the community. And this is a quick example just to highlight how the philosophy of third position can be erected into actual politics. What is most important to understand is that third position philosophy, the core universal tenets of it are simply guidelines to building the politics of a people. It is the people who through their support of a leader that use those guidelines to create something truly progressive and beneficial to both the individual and the group. For further reading to understand more in depth than what was presented in this video on the core philosophical components of third position. Please read The Origins and Doctrines of Fascism by Giovanni Gentile. Only a 100 pages long, this should be viewed as the Bible of third position and it will help you understand and even solidify your convictions of third position political philosophy. Let's get into another book on the philosophy of fascism, and this is entitled The Philosophy of Fascism by Mario Palamari. We'll break this book down in three separate videos. This will be the first of the three installments. And he'll deal with the first part of his book entitled Fascism as a Way of Life. One invisible tie binds together the destinies of all men. There cannot be any joy or any pain experienced by one single individual, any good or any evil befallen him, which shall not ultimately affect the welfare of the race, the progress of the world, and the very course of history. As the fall of stone in a quiet pool draws at the surface of the water concentric circles which grow always wider and dimeter, until they extend to the extreme limits of the pool, thus the consequences of a human deed which seemed at first to affect the life of one man grow little by little to affect the lives of all men. So, whether it's acknowledged or not, if you live in a community of people, an individual's actions, especially negative actions, affect much more than just themselves. No other period of human history is deemed, in fact, to be more unique, more brilliant, than the period of the Renaissance. If ever man seemed to have found the true measure of his powers, it was then when life was all one glory of artistic expression. But the Renaissance sang not only in the pian of art, it sang also the birth of individualism. The philosophy of life, which was to guide through the following centuries the thoughts and actions of men towards the present state of chaos and despair. The invisible and imponderable forces which molded the aspects assumed by the various manifestations of life of modern times were indeed born with the Renaissance. And the historian who attempts to portray the debacle of individualism and the rise of fascism must go back in time to discover the roots of this phenomenon within the fertile soil of ideas, theories, systems, etc., characterizing those eventful years. The Renaissance has importance. Instead, inasmuch as it represents the birth of individualism, the birth of a philosophy of life which was to hold sway over the thoughts and actions of men for well nigh four centuries. Those momentous centuries characterized by the greatest changes in all fields of human activity. The birth of individualism meant belief in man and his powers, hence the Reformation, which relying especially on man's reasoning power, transformed this belief into practical and in a way logical actuation with the doctrine of freedom from all authoritative rules of faith. The birth of individualism meant also the birth of freedom from all external authority, all external constraint, all external rules and laws, hence liberalism which, forgetting that man is truly a man only because he is a part of a greater whole, proclaimed the doctrine of liberty which is at the bottom only a doctrine of negative liberty. The birth of individualism meant, in short, the decay of all ties which connect man to the spiritual world and make of him a being thoroughly distinct from the world of nature. So the third position thought is individualism, extreme individualism. Of course, there is always an individualism within everyone, and there's always individualism encouraged as far as expression creativity, etc., ha- how man has created and invented, manifested thought into reality. But when the overall dogma of the society, of the New Age preachers, of democracy, of liberalism, of capitalism, is the individual above all that severs the root of Of the individual from the collective, from his people, from his tribe, from his ethnicity, from his race, from his nation, etc. What is individualism then? Individualism is the negation of the fundamental unity which is at the root of being and which underlies the whole world of man, is the negation of the principle of authority which reattaches through intermediate stages the fleeting individual to the eternal source of justice and power. Is the truly worthy of its name when it releases man of the tyranny of his needs, his desires, and his wants and makes him choose of his own free will what is of higher value than the satisfaction of senses? Is the negation of the principle of duty which is in the foundation of all the moral world and the affirmation in its stead of the principle of rights those rights which are the perennial spring of all human ills and evils is the negation of the spiritual essence of man and the affirmation that what is paramount for man is his material Economic or bodily well being, and that his welfare is worth any other being's suffering, disgrace, or death, is the glorification of each individual as a center and lord of the whole universe and the apotheosis, consequently, of his individual needs, passions, and desires, is finally the triumph of all reasoning. Faculties of the mind over the mystic powers of the soul. So, when you're separated from the root, when you're separated from your people, from your nation, uh, you are void of a greater cause outside of your own immediate uh, gratification. This is what Palomari is saying. But when you are part of the whole, under third position philosophy, there is a greater goal. There is the direction of humanity, there is a cohesiveness. Of citizen amongst each other. Jobs are not worked simply to make money to pay rent and to buy shit, but jobs are worked because they are contributing to the direction and the progress of the society and mankind itself. Third position philosophy is the philosophy of saying a united man with a direction can accomplish anything, but individualism and democracy and capitalism is tyranny of the lower instincts of man. Paul goes on, It is thus that, guided by the tenets of such a fatal philosophy of life, man was no longer concerned with the great beyond, with the ideals of ethics, with the triumph of law and justice, with the dream of salvation, with visions of great feats of the spirit. With the advent of modern times, man became primarily and above all concerned with his own welfare. And since belief in the soul was finally destroyed by the misinterpreted findings of science, this welfare meant in the end only and simply the welfare of his own body. The search for a meaning of life ended at the same time, with the discovery that the individual is the center of the whole universe, and that this universe is nothing more than a playfield ready at hand for the expression of his personality. Individualism, asserting itself and triumphing thus, every other conception of life gradually led mankind through democratic government, competitive business acquisition property, heredity wealth, economic individual welfare, social class struggle, and national wars, to a state of things of which it is already possible to visualize the outcome. That outcome prophesied so clearly and forcefully by Oswald Spangler in Decline of the West. The Renaissance had its day of glory and then as all mortal things, it became a thing of the past. But man, drunk with his newly discovered freedom, driven onward by his instincts and his psychological needs, carried on the daily business of living more and more relentlessly, ruthlessly, trampling over bodies and souls of his less endowed, less powerful fellow beings. The question must be raised then, and it is supremely timely that it be raised now. This was in 1936 when he wrote this book, so as paramount they raised it then, but here we are still now raising the same question. The question must be raised then, whether individualism represents the true answer to the quest of man for the right philosophy of life. It is the very nature of man, in fact, that he cannot remain long satisfied with the assumption that the life of his spirit is ended with a concern for the individual's bodily welfare, and that for him there is nothing else left than to eat and drink and beget other children, who in turn shall eat and drink and have children, so that the repetition of this seemingly perpetual cycle, birth, life, death, rebirth, may never come to an end. And maybe this is a part of our idealism as third position philosophy believers. But there's always the belief, as, as there is in me, as there was in Palomari close to 100 years ago, that materialism cannot fill the hole in people's soul for long enough to continue enough for a long time. And as the saying goes, man cannot live off bread and water alone. And this is the belief of the fascist. we we must have a direction we must have a goal man is meant to improve to excel to explore to discover to conquer and to continue on such a system can only stress the claims of the individual to complete self-expression and make of these claim the highest goal and the true end of life but the claims of one individual must need conflict with the claims of another. The life of one being must need be at war with the life of the whole if those claims are to be a triumph. An effort must be made to break the invisible tie which binds together the destinies of all men. If the life of the one be set against the life of another, A whole endless series of evils arises in short, whenever and wherever individualism triumphs as a philosophy and a way of life. And that's exactly what goes on under capitalism. You are set to compete financially against your neighbor, against your fellow citizen. If you work for a different company that produces the same product, you're working to put your fellow citizen out of business because it directly improves your material life under third position philosophy competition exists but the competition is not at the expense of putting your fellow citizen out of work of taking food off the table from children of your own nation It is thus clearly seen that the conditions which made possible the rise of fascism arose from the basic conception of which the modern life of the Western world is based. These conditions are not peculiar to one nation but to all nations. In its current materialistic, mechanistic, individualistic conception of life with its negation of the spiritual essence of man and with its assumption of a godless universe in which man is subject to only one rule the rule of his animal nature that has prepared the soil for the rise of fascism as it has today as it did then it is the apparent debacle of all human efforts for a better life the apparent impossibility to bring about some form of order out of the present state of chaos and stop the prophesized downfall of Western civilization. It is the realization that man left free to gratify his lust of power, his greed of gold, his love of the senses, his worship of force, is a pitiful and despicable being And it is finally the vision that a higher calling must be a true heritage of man. That has brought about the birth of fascism. It is the fact that man has lost faith in himself. The fact that he cannot derive any support from his inner world and he finds himself compelled to grope for an aid in the outer world. It is the acknowledged fact of his sad moral decadence, in short, that has made possible the triumph of fascism. It is not unusual to hear, in fact, that fascism is merely a change of the social and political system of one nation, or a revolt of the middle class, or an organization of the capitalistic groups, or the domination of a militaristic caste also the tool of despotism, the product of reaction, the creature of dictatorship, the instrument of brutal incontinent violence, and finally the nemesis of liberty. But all these definitions fail to seize the central truth of fascism. They place in a distorted relief some of the transitory aspects of the phenomenon but shed no light upon its permanent and universal elements that is upon the inner core of fascism which only has meaning and value for the whole world of men fascism is something more something infinitely greater than a tyrannical dictatorship over the souls and bodies of men something of deeper import than a new form of economic organization or a mere change of the social and political system of one nation what is fascism then fascism is an immensely idealistic and more specifically anti-materialistic and anti-individualistic philosophy of life fascism turns toward the individual to tell him thy life has no absolute no eternal value whatsoever thy life can assume worth only in as much as it is devoted and if necessary sacrificed to the triumph of an idea men live today die tomorrow but ideas live forever and the one who will seek to save his own life shall truly lose it, because only by offering it in a holocaust to the everlasting idea does the individual life partake of the character of immortality. Immortality is obtained in in the small part of contributing to that idea and being a small part of that, or to being a large part of that, of being an innovator and creator and enhancer within the idea. This meaning of life as a triumph of a remote ideal over the immediate reality of a universal over the individual is a fundamental characteristic of fascism. The conduct of life must rest upon three great unalterable principles. Fascism maintains namely the principle of unity, the principle of authority, and the principle of duty. Man does not live by bread alone, but also, and mainly, of beliefs. Given an inspiring set of beliefs, man may be able to accomplish great deeds, and the world may be vivified by a new age of faith. It is fascism which has brought mankind to face and to acknowledge once more the fundamental fact of life. The fact that in the words of Carlyle, But the thing a man does practically, the thing a man does practically lay to heart and know for certain concerning his vital relations to this mysterious universe and his duty and destiny there, that is in all cases the primary thing for him and creatively determines all the rest. Need of restoring the faith of mankind in a set of beliefs capable to vivify the present unbelieving, unsatisfactory, and aimless life into a new expression of power, of energy, of achievements. That's it. United and towards a common goal, we can achieve anything we desire. And it's so frustrating that we live in a society that encourages us Uh, Not only to all go our own little separate ways, but to indulge in hedonism, in nihilism, and cosmopolitanism on top of all of that. When they had the concept of unity and specific goals. This is always the most successful way to achieve anything. This is why every business, every sport team, every army is run under the same type of format. Authoritarian. Someone at top, setting the direction, setting the course and unified people working towards that goal. This is why there's no democracy on a football team. This is why there's no parliamentary activity in the war room. It is thus on this account of this recognition of mankind's deepest need of the visual and realization of a better life that fascism deserves to be hailed as the herald of a new age. The age which will witness the triumph of the whole realm of spiritual values over the petty and selfish aims of the individual ego. Man is above, outside and against nature. Man is a part and product of nature. These two visions of man, like the two poles of being, set in antithesis to each other and separated by an unbridgeable chasm represent the keys to the right understanding of the two contrasting philosophies of our times, fascist idealism and modern materialism. The moment that we think of man as being gifted with the gifts of the spirit and therefore endowed with the power of creation, with the ability to transcend the contingencies of his material life, with the desire to rise above determinism of outward events and inward needs, with the aspiration towards a life which is not of this earth, but belongs to the magic land of his beliefs and dreams, that moment marks also our entrance into the realm of fascist idealism. Like I've stated before, it is the desire to achieve the fantastical. It is realizing the potential of united man. It is realizing that a life led for material pleasures is a life wasted. The moment instead that we think of man bound to the world of nature, unable to free himself from the shackles and the fetters of his sense experiences, an animal among animals, The only difference between his life and their life being his peculiar subjection to the action of mysterious laws of economics which can make of the existence of the greater number of his brethren a veritable hell on earth. That moment marks also our acquaintance with materialism, the philosophical doctrine characterizing the way of life of so large a part of the modern world. It is in times like the present, when man's only happiness is found in sensuous enjoyment alone, when man's religious life is become a prefunctory performance of ritualistic and meaningless practices, when the life of the spirit is at its lowest ebb. That there is a high need for a new revival of idealism as a philosophy and a way of life. What shall the aspects of this new idealism be? It cannot eventually be a reaffirmation of the old theories and old principles. Neither can it be an academic discussion of abstract systems of beliefs with no relation to the world of facts, i.e. modern day liberalism, to be a vital force in the life of modern man the new idealism must above all deliver a message in tune with the needs of this life as it is being lived today and not as it ought to be lived in a future which may never dawn. Furthermore the new idealism must of necessity take into account all the complexity of the modern world. To deny this complexity or to ignore some aspects of this world would spell beforehand the doom of any philosophical doctrine which attempts to interpret or direct the present state of affairs. And this is exactly why fascism is always centered around populism, because it takes into account the world they're in. Once again, to refer to one of my other videos where I say we're dealt a certain hand and we have to play that hand. We can wish we were dealt a certain, a different hand, a better hand all we want, but we're not. We're dealt this hand and we have to play this hand to the best of our abilities. The new idealism must not remain an intellectual pastime of the elite, but must leaven the life of the masses. It is to the masses and not to the few that new idealism must bring its message of salvation and bring it in such a form as to make it easily intelligible and readily accepted. Because salvation is not a privilege of the intellectuals, but a need of the people. That is salvation from what makes the people forgetful of the existence of something higher and nobler than the life of the body. And leads them to exchange for a belief in the abiding reality of things unseen their belief in the illusory and deceptive transistorizes of the world of senses above all the message of the new idealism must be a message for the man of today the man whom we all know one of us our brother brother in spirit if not flesh with our vices and our virtues our hopes and our failures our sorrows and our joys our aspirations and our dreams only in this way can the new idealism conquer a place in our mind and in our heart change our whole way of life and thus bring about our own salvation such must the distinguishing features of the new idealism be, such indeed are the distinguishing features of fascist idealism. Striking at the root of the evil which poisons the very springs of his being, fascism tells man that it is high time for him to set himself definitively above, outside, against nature. Cutting abruptly the Gordian knot, which keeps him a slave of his psychological needs and the material hindrances fascism tells man arise at last come into thine own reach the full stature of thy being fulfill thy mission in the world be the master of thine own destiny and when he talks about overcoming nature he's essentially talking about overcoming what freud called the id Overcoming those primal instincts, those same things that the capitalists feed on today, those same things that international finance feeds on today. The fascist way of life is thus as it ought be lived a life that is of devotion to those ideals which from the very substance of the world of the spirit, the world of timeless and absolute values which partakes of the essence of God and to which belongs to the true essence of man. In the fascist way of life, man becomes conscious at last of his sense of responsibility towards his fellow beings will transform the conception of the brotherhood of all human beings into a fact. The vision of the indissoluble tie which makes of their destinies one interrelated whole into a reality. I bet your public school teacher didn't tell you this was what fascism was. I bet you the History Channel didn't tell you this is what fascism is. They create a false narrative and false reality of fascism because they fear it. They know this ideal can catch on like a wildfire spreading and engulfing the spirit of the people. There is a question that man has always asked at every crucial time of his history. And that question is, What is the meaning and purpose of this life of mine? Has it a mission to fulfill, a goal to reach, a plan to unfold? Or is it simply a tale full of fury signifying nothing? I wonder how many people actually even have that thought today. Maybe I'm being a bit pessimistic, but I truly wonder that. I think as mankind has degraded, less and less people has asked themselves this and seriously pondered this question. Because if they have, I don't see how this modern lie can continue to go on. Throughout the whole process of history, we assist, in other words, to the unfolding powers and energies within man of almost divine nature, of almost godlike essence. Whenever his anxious quest for the meaning of life Has led him to visualize and worship a deeper reality lying behind and beyond the intermediate and closely bound world of his own self. But with the advent of modern man the scene changes. Man is no longer concerned with the ideals of beauty, of law, of authority is no longer interested in the life beyond, is no longer living for the triumph of the spirit within. With the advent of modern times, man is simply and solely concerned with his own welfare. And since this welfare means only the satisfaction of his bodily needs and desires, A thoroughly materialistic view of life which has no place for the worship of such intangible things as the worship of ideals triumphs over and against all which had been held great and dignified and worthy in human life it is thus that modern man rejecting all other interpretations of the meaning of life as expressions of a dead and soon forgotten past maintains that it is highly doubtful whether life has meaning at all and that at best this meaning consists only of the fullest realization of one's own possibilities and that the goal of life is to bring about such a realization here on this earth and not in a hypothetical world which may never exist in a future time which may never dawn simply living for the here and now. And I've met so many people that are not concerned with the future at all because they're like, hey, I'm not going to be here. So of course, they're not concerned with what's going on today or as society downward spirals. They have no concern because they can still get all the pleasure comforts they want while they're alive. And this is what individualism has brought to modern male. This is what capitalism has brought to modern male. This is what democracy has brought to modern male. This mentality, in consistency with this view of life, modern man has waged a relentless war against all which appeared to him to replace restrictions on his freedom, because only in an unfettered freedom does he believe it possible to realize his will to live. To let all this come to pass, he has made a slogan of the word liberty, which has become, for him, a truly magic word capable of unlocking the doors of heaven and uh, on earth, and offering him what he has always sought and never found because it can never be found, visa material and sensual happiness. And you meet these people all the time. They get all dreamy-eyed and they talk about liberty, but they have no fucking clue what liberty is. What it means is an abstract concept. And like Mario saying here, it's something that can never be found. You can never make yourself material and sensual, happy enough. You're always going to want more, 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 more. You'll never be satisfied with it. You look at all the rich, successful people that have killed themselves. You can't Fill that void with material you can't fill that void with pleasure senses a direction in man a purpose to life can fill that void and fascism offers that where democracy cannot where capitalism cannot in the name of religious liberty he has undermined religion in the name of political liberty he has nullified the state In the name of economic liberty he has enslaved his brethren in the name of personal liberty he has destroyed the family a thoroughly materialistic view of human life has thus brought about the triumph of the individual's animalistic will to live over the individual's spiritual aspirations and the downfall of those institutions which took mankind's eons of time to bring into being and represent the true achievements of man on this earth. All sense of responsibility has fled from that man. Responsibility towards the spirit within calling him to make his outward actions the expression of an inward life. Responsibility towards his fellow beings who have become the tool and the pawn of his selfish desires and responsibility towards the state which demands from its citizens new generations dedicated not to the pursuit of the ego's desires, but to the service of the fatherland's needs. A new dark age is still possible, and it will dawn upon us soon enough, unless we find a meaning for life, a different purpose than the satisfaction of the senses, and finally, a new goal for our efforts, it is the possibility of such a dark age which fascism is trying strenuously and successfully to stave off by teaching us anew the truth that we need to visualize and to worship a deeper reality lying beyond, lying behind and beyond the intermediate and closely bound world of the self if we want to find peace, achieve salvation and restore dignity and purpose to our life. the conduct of life cannot be left to the individual choice of the people cannot be dependent from their individual likes and dislikes it must be instead determined for them by a power which is above them and comprehends them namely the state because upon the state rests the duty and the task of the fulfillment of the national ideal because the state alone is conscious of the ends and the aims of the nation's life. This cardinal tenet of fascism fully realized in practice as well as in theory brings to a close brings to a close the whole period of human history characterized by the belief in man and his powers. That period begun with the reformation Leading to the French Revolution and the Declaration of Rights of Man, and ending finally with the present state of chaos and despair of the modern world. The conduct of life must rest upon three great unalterable principles fascism maintains, namely, the principle of unity, the principle of authority, and the principle of duty. The first principle of the fascist conduct of life rests upon a mystic belief of the oneness of all living beings. The second principle, the principle of authority, rests upon another mystic belief, that of the divine essence of the hero. Not the military hero, but the hero in the sense meant by Carlyle's hero of the soul. And he says, Carlisle says, find in any country the ablest man that exists there. Raise him to the supreme place and loyalty reverence him. You have a perfect government for that country. No ballot box, parliamentary eloquence, voting, constitution, building, or other machinery whatsoever can can improve it a whit. It is the perfect state, the ideal country. Thus spoke Carlyle in his lecture on the hero as king delivered the 22nd of May 1840, and his words are no less true today than they were a hundred years ago nay still closer to the truth if that could be possible and true in a still deeper sense than Carlisle ever thought and that's been shown all throughout history when you have this avatar I mean they just completely change the whole game they can lead a people to heights uh, never thought obtainable no man is an outcast in the social system of fascism no man is worthless no man, that is, who belongs to the fascist nation and to its life. And, and that is another frustrating aspect of being a fascist in this modern world, is that the people, fascism would help the most, uh, damn it today, and, and they want to commit violence to you for being a fascist. So it's a grand irony, and a little black pilling at times, when you're met with so much resistance and ignorance towards the fascistic ideal, when no man is worthless in a fascist nation that is the point of fascism but today we see in the modern system in the current system not only are men some men worthless but many are expendable it is therefore not the smallest title of glory of fascism to have brought about this new realization of the fellowship of man at a time held by common consent to be a time of supreme and inevitable moral decadence. Well, you should see it today, buddy. <laughs> I mean, if you thought that was moral decadence in the 30s, yeah, he had no idea. Well, he had an idea. He was obviously fighting against uh, what the future was going to be if fascism didn't win. But, yeah, we, we got moral decadence uh, cubed compared to what uh, Mario Palomari was dealing with. But those two great principles of unity, of all human beings, and of devotion to authority as expressed through the scale of human values, cannot be separated. Fascism holds from the third and greatest principle of all, the principle of duty. In this conception of duty as a supreme motive power of the actions of man, and in the belief that such a conception can be transformed into a living reality, that fascism reveals most clearly the profound idealism underlying its philosophy. Man is gifted with reason and is gifted with a social capacity. He has made so far full use of his first gift. In high time, fascism says, that he realizes all the possibilities contained within the second. Man, in other words, must be awakened to the sense of responsibility towards his fellow being which is comprehended under the name of duty and until this sense of responsibility is entirely awakened and active in his life he is not entitled to the name of man think military brotherhood when he's talking here think uh, of that bond that's built and and brotherhood uh, when especially in battle And he's saying citizens should manifest the strength of this bond, even without battle, but simply being citizens, being brothers, on the same path, on the same mission, battling the same struggle together as we advance together. In common with all the animal kingdom, man pursues his rights, but alone in the universe, he is bound to recognize duty. Fascism rejects the doctrine of materialism and any other doctrine which attempts to explain the intricate history of human societies from the narrow and exclusive standpoint of the preeminence of material interests. Finally, when faced by the issue of relationship of man to his fellow beings, fascism rises to the vision of that future state of society, that state in which man shall not attempt to enslave his brethren shall not erect himself as their master but shall instead do whatever in his power to elevate them to a higher level of consciousness where ethical norms reign supreme the general all-embracing conception is that life is an expression of the soul and as such flowering at its best only when its spiritual claims are fully recognized and satisfied. Now the nature of these claims is such that they conflict in inevitably with all the individual's egotistical aspirations ambitions and desires. The fascist conception of life advances therefore demands upon the inner world of man that the ordinary human being is wary to satisfy. It is from this contrast between the claims of the individual and the claims of the whole that the problem of liberty arises because fascism finds necessary at the outset to take away from the ordinary human being what he has been taught and has grown to cherish the most personal liberty. And it can be affirmed without falling into exaggeration that a curtailment of personal liberty not only has proved to be and must necessarily be a fundamental condition of the triumph of fascism. Unfortunately, it is due to such a curtailment that the greatest misunderstanding of fascism has risen in a world where personal liberty is made almost the paramount issue of life. But fascism holds that personal liberty is not an end to itself, personal liberty is simply a means to the realization of a much greater end, namely the liberty of the spirit. This last meaning, the faculty of the human soul of rising above the power of outward circumstances and inward needs to devote itself to the cult of those ideals which form the true goal of life. And if you notice, this in the previous video was mentioned a lot in the video on the four bodies, of not simply just being a reaction to stimuli surrounding you, which unfortunately most people are. Two radical different conceptions of liberty are thus in conflict, and there is no hope that the abyss which separates them can never be bridged. So that is always the argument against liberty, or against fascism, is, oh, it takes away liberty from us. No, fascists have a different conception of liberty than the conception of liberty of the modern male. In the fascist conception, to be free means to be no more a slave to one's own passions, ambitions, or desires. Means to be free to that will what is true, and good, and just. At all times in all cases means in other words to realize here in this world the true mission of man in the individualistic conception instead to be free is to follow the call of one's own nature to worship one's own God to think to act or to speak according to the dictates of one's own mind to earn, to spend, to save, or to hoard at will, to accumulate property and to deed it following one's own whims or fancy, to reach all hedonistic goals, wealth, happiness, or pleasure. In other words, to be unhindered by compulsions, restrictions, or prohibitions, rules, codes, and laws. In this conception, liberty takes, as Spangler says, Liberation from all bonds of civilization, from every kind of form and custom, pride and quietly born poverty, silent fulfillment of duty, renunciation for the sake of a task or conviction, greatness in enduring one's fate, loyalty, honor, responsibility, achievements, all this a constant reproach to the humiliated and insulted and even admitting that scientific progress and national economic planning were to make it possible for each and every individual to come in possession of a reasonable amount of material comfort it still remains true that it is the very nature of man that he is not at any time satisfied with his present condition and therefore his yearning to earn more spend more save more accumulate more property will still and always gnaw at his heart and make him wish for that magic freedom, which is not of this world, or at least not of the world in its civilized state. Truly freedom, absolute unrestricted freedom, is not the child of liberty, but the mother of anarchy. A true culture state means a state of society in which ethical values reign supreme and ethical values presuppose in all cases limitations of individual freedom. Every human being in fact finds himself facing at the very instance of his life the dilemma whether the satisfaction of a certain desire, a certain instinct, or a certain need conflicts with the welfare of his fellow beings and whether or not he ought to bring about the realization of such a satisfaction irrespective of its ultimate consequences. It is in the making of this decision, it is in the act of choosing not what he knows he desires, likes or needs, but what his conscience tells him he ought to choose even if this choice means suffering, disgrace, or martyrdom, or death, that a human being becomes worthy of the name of man. Then and only then he rises to the vision of the true role, the understanding of the true meaning, and the knowledge of the true function of liberty. Then and only then the words of Emil can appear to him full of significance, He can give the affirmative answer to the pregnant question of the Swiss thinker. Is not responsibility the ultimate root of the being of man? It is high time instead, says fascism, that the individual be brought back to the vision of his true place in the universe. It is high time that he learns how to curb and master his self. The day that he has learned how to master his own destiny, that day will sign for man his title to freedom, complete, unbound freedom, and will mark thus for him the birth of his true manhood. Man must become therefore the master of his own self, master of his own fate. This is the call and the challenge of our times this is the message of fascism to rise above the power of the outward circumstances and the inward needs to heed the call of the spirit to bring forth the divine in him must be the true goal of man's efforts man must realize then with fascism that this freedom is not an end in itself but a means to an end in the words of Mussolini, liberty is not a right but a duty. According to fascism, a true great spiritual life cannot take place unless the state has risen to a position of preeminence in the world of man. The curtailment of liberty thus becomes justified at once with this need of raising the state to its rightful position and that position is being the spearhead guiding and creating this type of society this type of environment where man's lower instincts are not fed upon where man is not encouraged to indulge endlessly in his personal wants But rather man becomes a part of a team, man becomes a part of the nation, man now has a reason to work and live outside of himself. This is why fascism is not some mere political doctrine, but a way of life. Let's get into a second part of a three-part series of videos based off of the book The Philosophy of Fascism by Mario Palmieri. The first part dealt with fascism as a philosophy, fascism as a way of life. Part 2 will deal with fascism as a political and economic organization. All possibilities of the realization of democracy rest ultimately upon the implicit belief in the capacity of the common man to know what is good and beautiful and true, that is, upon a naive unbound faith in his wisdom. And because it has been generally assumed that wisdom can be taught, it was only natural to hope that in adequate time the common man would undoubtedly become the living embodiment of all intellectual and moral virtues. And finally, because men in general believe to be true what they only hope to be true, the gospel of democracy as this new utopia found immediate acceptance and widespread diffusion. The whole history of modern times may be characterized by the struggle, the temporary victory, and the final defeat to ensure the kingdom of democracy in human society when this society was not ready, and is not, and will perhaps never be, to let the common man be our of his own and his brother's life. But this phase of human history is drawing to a close. If it has not already drawn to a close, you have to remember at this time they were pretty hopeful that they've seen the end of capitalistic democracies. More and more clearly and forcefully, we are coming to realize that we were and are deceiving ourselves. That narrow limitations constitute the boundaries of the spiritual, intellectual, and moral life of the common man. That he is by nature endowed with instincts, but not with wisdom and that no amount of learning, instruction, education can ever increase his human stature beyond the limits set to his possibilities at the very time of his birth. Fascism recognizes, therefore, at the outset that democracy cannot be realized and that whenever and wherever it has been tried, it has degenerated sooner or later into an oligarchy of tyrannical autocrats, be they military as of old or financial as in modern times. And that holds true today. I mean, we are completely run by an oligarchy of international finance and multinational corporations. As Mussolini said, 17th of November, 1922, we want to uplift the people materially and spiritually, but not because we think that number, mass, quantity may create some special types of civilization in the future. We leave this ideology to those who profess themselves to be priests of this mysterious religion. These words of Mussolini are the key to the twofold aspects of fascism characterized by its lack of faith in the masses and its great aim of uplifting their material and spiritual conditions. What shall the fascist state do then for the countless beings constituting the pulsating living masses of people? with their ambitions and their desires, their love and their hates, their dreams, and their hopes, what shall the fascist state do for them and what can it expect from them in return? It is in the positing of such a question and in its answer where fascism differs most radically from any political and social system of modern times, because the whole outlook of fascism on the role played by the different individuals of a nation is based on a philosophical conception of the uttermost singularity and importance. Fascism resolutely rejects that so often and so vociferously repeated slogan that all men are created equal. Fascism holds instead that all men are created unequal in intellectual, spiritual, moral, and physical attributes. What is common to all men is their humanity. But just because of the fact that the supreme meaning of this common root overshadows the meaning of whatever differences might exist in those accessories of human personality which are taught creative ability, artistic expression, and so forth, just because of the fact that all men, whether they are intelligent or not, creators or thinkers or laborers, artists or artisans, are nevertheless only and simply human beings after all. Fascism holds, that all the members of a nation must consider themselves to be nothing more than servants of one cause, giving correspondingly to the inborn possibilities the full measure of their devotion to the triumph of this cause. What mankind has lost thus with the loss of political democracy, it has gained with a revenge in this new conception of a spiritual democracy where the greatest and lowest have, in the eyes of a state, the same ultimate worth. The criticism heaped thus at fascism, when it has been confused with dictatorship, has no foundation because the two terms are not synonymous, because fascism is something more, something infinitely greater than dictatorship, because the fascist peculiar form of political organization is nothing else but a tool necessary at present for the building up of a nation's life, and because this tool may be used or discarded in turn as the occasion arises, and the needs demand it, without affecting in the least the essential truth of fascism. If authoritarian rule, in other words, is temporarily a necessary element of fascism, if liberalism must be discarded for a new form of social theory, if democracy is incompatible with the true political and social characteristics of mankind, it is nevertheless also true that fascism does not imply necessarily dictatorship, that liberalism may still evolve so as to accept as fundamental reality of life the duality between the possibilities inherent to man as individual and those inherent to man as a social being and abandon forever its utopian belief in man as master of the whole universe, and that finally the new democracy may be enabled to select heroes for leaders, true heroes, not demagogic puppets, and become thus another form of fascism under a different name. The distrust of the parliaments, which only now have become general throughout the entire world, was voiced by F.T. Marinetti in Italy as early as 1910. The parliamentary system is almost everywhere a wasted form, he said. It gave us a few good results, created an illusionary participation of the majority in the government. I say illusionary because it is proved fact that people cannot and will never be represented by representatives that they do not know how to select. The people, therefore, always remain outside the government." Okay, it's the fascist state. The humanistic principle of the liberal state, which was born out of a vague belief in the worth of the individual, had seen its best days and had degenerated into chaotic and meaningless practice. The democratic principle which presupposes the inborn wisdom of the masses. The fundamental moral goodness and the unquestioned intellectual capacity of the people had been thoroughly disproved by the actual facts in those countries where it had been most characteristically tried. Nothing else seen left for mankind than the communist folly bringing the world suddenly back to the primitive state of society of ants or bees. Faced with this symptomatic decay of all political organizations, the first task of fascism became that of re-establishing the faith of mankind into the state as an ideal. The reason of being of the state is not to be found instead, according to fascism, in external causes like, for instance, a social contract of its component parts, but it is to be found in the nature of the ethical entity summing up in itself the collective expression of a nation. Without the state, there is no nation, as the nation first rises to consciousness of itself in the state and through the state. It is, instead, the supreme characteristic of the fascist state, the capacity and the will to act, to legislate, and to command, the capacity, in other words, of operating as an ethical personality. This concept of the function that the state must fulfill in the world of man, and which represents without doubt, one of the most original concepts of fascism finds its most brief and explicit expression in the definition of the state fascist labor charter, the Magna Carta of fascism. To read this definition means to read the opening of a new chapter in the development of human society. It means also to breathe again the air of idealism coming to vivify once more the life of man into an expression of spiritual energy. It means finally to prove the sense of elation and pride derived from the realization that it is yet possible for man to know and realize some of the highest truths of the spiritual world. And the quote he's speaking about from the fascist labor charter, which also on this channel, there's a video based off of the fascist labor charter. Uh, the quote being, The Italian nation is an organism which has an aim, a life, a means of action superior both in element and power, an element of time to the aims, the life and the means of action of the individuals or groups of individuals who compose it. We find thus, in his first utterance on the subject, Mussolini says on November 16, 1922, It is not of definite programs that Italy is lacking. No. What is lacking to Italy are men and the will to apply those programs. The state represents today this firm and determined will. The definition of the state finds thus an always better expression as time goes on. But the supreme function of the fascist state, that of safeguarding and incarnating the idea, the essence of the will of the nation, is awaiting its true definition as yet. This definition is almost at the point of being defiantly uttered when Mussolini, speaking on the 8th of August 1924, says, the state sums up in itself not only political consciousness of the nation at the present time, but also what the nation is going to be in the future. The fascist state is, in other words, not only the social, political, and economic organization of the people of a nation, but it is also the outward manifestation of their moral and religious life, and as such, is therefore an ethical state. In the words of Giovanni Gentile, we affirm our belief that the state is not a system of hindrances and external juridical controls from which men flee, but an ethical being, which, like the conscious of an individual, manifests its personality and achieves its historical growth in human society. Thus it is conscious, of not being hedged in by special limits, but of being open, ready, and capable of expanding as a collective and yet individual will. The nation is that will, conscious of itself and of its own historical past, which, as we formulate it in our minds, defines and delineates our nationality, generating an end to be attained, a mission to be realized. For that will, in case of need, our lives are sacrificed. For our lives are genuine, worthy, and endowed with the inconstitutable value only as they are spent in accomplishment of that mission. The state's active and dynamic consciousness is a system of thought, of ideas, of interests to be satisfied, and of morality to be realized. Hence, the state is, as it ought to be, a teacher. It maintains and develops schools to promote this morality. In the school, the state comes to a consciousness of its real being. According to these views of fascist thinkers, the state is therefore no more a purely abstract political entity, but a concrete being whose growth, development, and progress follow laws upon their own. And the nation is, at the same time, the material substance and the spiritual essence of the state. The process of education implies thus primarily the formation and fostering of the national consciousness. The rise of fascism destroys forever thus that Gideon's knot of apparently insoluble social problems born from the clash of conflicting interests of individuals within the state. No individuals or group, political parties, cultural associations, economic unions, social classes are outside the state. Fascism is therefore opposed to socialism to which unity within the state, as an amalgamation of classes into a single economic and ethical reality, is unknown, which sees in history nothing but class struggle. Fascism is likewise opposed to trade unionism as a class weapon, but when brought within the state, fascism recognizes the real needs which gave rise to socialism and trade unionism, giving them due weight in the guild or corporative system in which divergent interests are coordinated and harmonized within the unity of the state. Grouped according to their several interests, individuals from classes, they form trade unions when organized according to their several economic activities. But first and foremost, they form the state, which must never be considered as a mere matter of numbers, and simply the sum of the individuals forming the majority. Fascism is therefore opposed to that form of democracy which equates a nation to the majority, lowering it to the level of the largest number. But it is the purest form of democracy if the nation be considered as it should be from the point of view of quality rather than quantity. As an idea, the mightiest become the most ethical, the most coherent, the truest, expressing itself in a people as the conscious and will of the few if not indeed of one, and ending to express itself in the consciousness of the will of the mass, of the whole group ethically molded by natural and historical conditions into a nation advancing, as one conscious and one will along the same line of development and spiritual formation. The nation is not a race, nor a geographical defined region, but a people historically perpetrating itself, a multitude unified by an idea and imbued with the will to live, the will to power, self-consciousness, personality. Fascism, in short, is not only a lawgiver and founder of institutions, but an educator and promoter of spiritual life. It's aim at refashioning not only the forms of life, but their content. Man, his character, and his faith. To achieve this purpose, it enforces discipline and uses authority entering into the soul and ruling with undisputed sway. Therefore, it has chosen as its emblem the rods, the symbol of unity, strength, and justice. The Constitution of the Fascist State In the Fascist State, the legislative power belongs both to the Parliament and to the King, who through his Secretary of State exercises the legislative power by refusing to let any bill which he disapproves of receive parliamentary consideration. Of course, you have to remember, in uh, fascist Italy, it it truly never was a finalized fascist revolution uh, like what happened in Germany. Uh, The king was still the final decision maker, which personally I think was a mistake. It should have been fully revolutionary and deposed the king right away. Furthermore, it is in the faculty of the executive power to emanate judicial norms without the immediate consent of the legislative branch of government whenever the supreme good of the state may require it. This new power of the executive sets well-defined limits to the activity of the legislators, bringing this activity back to that true function of legislation, so often misinterpreted in the degeneration of the liberal democratic doctrines. And as this collaboration is realized in the best possible way, when during the discussion of each law, specialized knowledge is brought to bear on each specific problem it becomes necessary that the chamber of deputies be transformed from a political congregation of heterogeneous individuals to a specialized homogeneous body of experts on the various aspects of life so very technocratic on decisions instead of having a bunch of lawyers and politicians you know, argue in the parliament about it i uh, have skilled and educated and well-versed people in whatever field the decisions being made taking a part of the discussion of what laws are to be made or what actions are to be taken the chamber of deputies becomes thus a vocational chamber whose 400 members are elected are elected by list drawn up by the fascist grand council containing 1000 names designated by the various vocational groups of the nation in the fascist state the ministers are responsible only to the premier who in turn is responsible to the king alone and to no other the king in other words not the people is the true sovereign of the fascist state highly characteristic of this reform is therefore the place which fascism assigns to the premier who is also the secretary of state now this is mussolini's role as well as head of government inferior in authority only to the king and invested with the dignity and responsibility far superior to that of any other organ of the state. This authority conferred to the head of government is far from making of him what is commonly meant today by the word dictator. Time it was when a dictator was a person elected by the people and to whom the people delegated their authority for a determinate period of time only. A dictator was then a servant, not a master of the people. He worked in the interest of the people only and inasmuch as the people were then identified with the state. He worked in the interest of the state. The two poles of the fascist state are the people and the king, not the people and the head of the government. While the king personifies the sovereign authority of the state, authority which in itself sums up all powers, executive, legislative, and judiciary, The head of the government represents only the king in his relationship with the people. It is thus that in the fascist reform of the state, the king is still the only one who has the right to declare war or accept peace, the right of pardoning those condemned by the judiciary organs of the state, the right of stipulating in the name of the state, treaties of alliance with other states, and finally the right to be outside and above all laws. The description of the fascist reform would not be complete without mentioning the part played by the the Grand Council of the fascist party this Grand Council is an absolutely new organ of government a purely fascist creation which finds no counterpart in the Constitution of any other state the Grand Council being the voice of the only recognized political party of the nation the fascist party in the absence of a political chamber of deputies is the only recognized political organ of the fascist state. The Grand Council does not legislate nor pass judgment, neither enforces laws nor repeals them. What it does accomplish is something of a very elusive character. It maintains always alive the fascist tradition. Its more specific functions are the approval of the king's successor, the designation of the crown of the head of the government and of to the ministers, the choice of the names to be submitted to the various vocational groups for the election of their deputies, the discussion of all questions which may affect the constitution of the fascist state, and the deliberation of all issues which may affect the life of the fascist party. In brief, the Grand Council is not the crown, not the people, not the government, not the party. It is simply the organ through which fascism will perpetrate itself in the Italian nation as long as there are Italians fit to become fascists. So in that segment, he broke down the levers of power in the Italian fascist state. And once again, a common misconception was Mussolini was this complete dictator figure when actually the king served more as that. And once again, in my own opinion, it was a bad idea. Mussolini and the fascists should have been more and more revolutionary and ousted the king. And of course there were people that wanted that within the fascist party. And maybe that would have come about in some parallel universe where World War II didn't happen. But we go on now, we go on to the corporative idea. Fascism, which is the very antithesis of individualism, stands as the nemesis of all economic doctrines and all economic practice of both capitalistic and the communistic system. Fascism holds that, One, the economic life of man cannot be abstracted and separated from the whole of his spiritual life. In the words of Mussolini, the economic man does not exist. Man is integral. He is political, economic, religious, saint, and warrior all at the same time. Indeed, he is not simply just a stock share for the elite to trade and sell whenever it profits them to do so. Number two, the economic life of man is influenced if not actually determined by idealistic factors. Idealistic factors being the mission Paul Murray spoke about earlier. Whatever the unified goal of the people and country are, whatever they're working towards together to achieve these magnificent goals. The idealism of fascism, of third position ideology, is always fantastical. Three, true economic progress can derive only from the concerted effort of individuals who know how to sacrifice their personal egoism and ambition for the good of the whole. Four, economic initiatives cannot be left to arbitrary decisions of private individual interests. Yeah, it's insane to allow people who have no attachment or or to allow individuals who have no attachment to the people to make economic decisions That's going to affect the whole country, especially at the end of the day, when these individuals who are involved in these corporations, who are the elites of these corporations, are only concerned with the bottom line, profit. Fascism puts people before profit. Capitalism puts profit before people. Number five, open competition, if not wisely directed and restricted, actually destroys wealth instead of creating it. Six, the wealth of a community is something intangible, which cannot be identified with the sum of riches of single individuals. Number seven, the proper function of a state in the fascist system is that of supervising, regulating, and arbitrating the relationships of capital and labor. Employers and employees, individuals and associations, private interests and national interests, which once again, just another misnomer promoted by typically capitalists and conservatives, is that fascism was this full central planning, fully controlled, fully totalitarian economic system, which put everyone under the weight of a single dictator. Number eight class war is avoidable and must be avoided class war is deleterious to the orderly and fruitful life of a nation therefore it has no place in the fascist state number nine more important than the production of wealth is its right distribution which must benefit in the best possible way all the classes of the nation hence the nation itself and number 10 private wealth belongs not only to the individual but in a symbolic sense to the state as well. Knowing that the social problem cannot be entirely solved by regulation of the reports between capital and labor, but must be solved also with regard to the general facts of production and distribution. Fascism decrees that the productive forces of the nation cannot be any longer at the mercy of the individual's selfishness and greed and must be brought instead under the supreme discipline of the state. Originated as an instrument of the War of Classes, Syndicalism attempted to organize the various categories of workers and syndical organizations, having no other goal than the protection of the material welfare of its own members. These organizations were devoted thus to the furthering of supremely particularized interest, ready to set themselves against each other and against the state itself, whenever those interests were menaced or conflicted with others. The problem which presented itself as an ominous menace upon the horizon of fascism at the outset of its very life in Italy was, therefore, to bring at once the phenomenon of syndicalism under the authority of the state, and successfully to transform its original aim of protecting the interests of the proletariat into protecting the interests of the whole nation. This could be accomplished only by enlarging the narrow form of the original syndicalist organizations into larger forms which would include all the citizens of the nation into an all-comprehensive national manifestation. This manifestation of the Italians of all classes, all professions, all trades, and of all creeds into the framework of one enormous and far-reaching organization, which has for its end the material welfare of the whole, is called National Syndicalism. This National Syndicalism represents the first attempt made to bring the egotistical claims of the individual under the discipline of the sovereign state. For the realization of an aim which transcends the welfare of the individual and identifies itself with the prosperity of the whole nation. To make this discipline possible, and the sovereignty effective in practice as well as in theory, fascism had devised the corporations an instrument of social life, destined to exercise the most far-reaching influence upon the economic development of fascist states. Within the corporations, the interests of producers and consumers, employers and employees, individuals and associations are interlocked and integrated in a unique and univocal way, while all types of interests are brought under the aegis of the state. Finally, through these corporations, the state may at any time that it deems fit, or at that the need requires, intervene within the economic life of the individual to let the supreme interest of the nation have precedence over his private particular interests, even to the point where his work, his savings, his whole fortune may need to be pledged, if absolutely necessary, sacrificed. The fascist state can be defined, then, as a state of syndical composition and corporative function. Through these corporations, the fascist state not only recognizes the specific interests of individuals of classes and categories, also recognized by the liberal and democratic state, but in addition organizes them, submits them to the authority and discipline of the state, and makes of them the most appropriate instruments for the development of the economic life of the nation. Whoever thinks of fascist economy must think of it, therefore, as of something more than a new form of economics, because it is first of all, and above all, a translation of ethics into economics, an application of ethical principles to economic facts. Once the economic problem has been disposed of, there still remains to be solved the problem of a satisfactory human life. Economic security cannot be more than a gateway economic security cannot be more than a gateway to the life of the spirit material welfare can never be exchanged or bartered for the welfare of the soul the fascist doctrine avails itself of the economic principles of syndicalism and corporation but considers them only as a tool its aim is not to establish a paradise of communism in which each man shall have equal share of all the good things of life or the paradise of the individualism, in which each man shall have all that he can get of all the good things of life and remain satisfied with them, but to establish a state of society where man, free of the struggle for existence, may devote his energies to a greater aim of concerning himself with those things which outlast the centuries and partake of the truth. Which has always been one of the most attractive aspects of fascism as far as I'm concerned and what makes me a fanatical believer in it. Let's go over that again. But to establish a state of society where man, free of the struggle for existence, free from the struggle of existence, why? Because uh, you're part of this corporative system. Uh, You're working, you have a job, you're contributing, uh, you're getting that back, you're having your nationalized health care, your nationalized education. You have your material comforts but more importantly so may devote his energies to the greater aim of concerning himself with those things, which outlast the centuries and partake of the truth. So now your energies, what you're working towards is not just to make some company richer, sell more product to people, but partaking in these magnificent fantastical ideas. These concepts, which outlast the centuries and partake of the truth, which is the deepest essence of what man should be trying to engage in in our short experience on this earth, but no, it's Big Macs and porn for us. Fascism denies the equation: well-being equals happiness, which would make of men of mere animals, thinking only how they can satiate and fatten themselves, reducing them therefore to a vegetative existence pure and simple and if it is true that matter has been worshiped throughout a whole century it is also true that it is a spirit which today has taken its place he's talking about what was going on in modern Italy if it's true that matter has been worshiped like it is now or it's all material worship today uh, in his time when there was this young revolution going on It was spirit that had taken a place. As the old saying goes, man cannot live off bread and water alone. You need a cause. You need something deeper. Let's go deeper into the corporative system. Uh, The fascist regime must always avoid the corruption of the spirit by the letter. Avoid also materialistic aims which may overshadow the idealistic ones. Avoid, finally, the possibility of interest or ambitions of a few individuals prevailing over the general interest of the people. Mussolini. This syndicalist organization, generally thought of as a highly complicated structure, is in fact very simple. Employers and workers are grouped separately in professional and trade associations of the first grade, local syndicates. These local syndicates are grouped in turn in higher grade syndical associations called federations, each representing a single category or class of persons engaged in the same occupation. These federations of a national character and therefore called national federations are also linked together whenever they cover activities having some ground in common. This link is provided by a syndical association of a still higher grade called Confederation, which joins all the national federations of syndicates engaged in one of the four branches of activity, banking, industry, commerce, and agriculture. There are thus eight general confederations, four of employers and four of employees, engaged in the four main branches of national activity, and in addition, A ninth national confederation of all intellectual workers constituted by the association of all persons engaged in the arts and professions, where no distinction is made between employer and worker. The confederations are organs of semi-political nature, because they are empowered to represent the interests of their affiliated syndicates in all their relationships with the national government and are empowered by the state to supervise, control, and coordinate on behalf of the government the activities of the local syndicates in its provinces. So it sets up stages of accountability. The duties of the local syndicates are A. To stipulate collective labor contracts for the workers in the territory of its jurisdiction B. Settle labor disputes C. Organize social welfare services and professional training courses for its members D. Appoint representatives to sit at boards or committees where the entire category should be represented. And once again, in, in the fascist uh, labor charter video, it goes into details uh, very similar to this. The duties of the national federations are A. Protect the interest of all categories represented in the favor of their economic and technical development. B. Examine and settle economic and social questions concerning each of the categories represented, C. Stipulate collective labor contracts between categories, D. Regulate economic relations between them, E. Supervise social welfare work and the technical and mental training of members, F. Promote the development and improvement of production, and G. Appoint representatives of the various categories to sit at corporations and other councils where such categories should be represented. Confederations have duties and functions very similar to those assigned to the national federations, but they cover a wider and deeper range of action. Inasmuch as they are concerned with the general interest of all national federations represented by them, they represent thus the most important part of the entire edifice of fascist syndicalism. It is thus current practice of the fascist system that whenever disputes arise within a syndical organization, that they are referred to their respective corporations and, if necessary, to the Ministry of Corporations for an effort at conciliation. Should the conciliation fail, the dispute is brought before the labor court, which is nothing more than an ordinary court of appeal assisted by experts in the subject under dispute. So once again, levels and accountability. The employer does not have the last say. At present, there are 22 corporations in existence, composed of delegates from employers and employees in all national activities. Together with ex-official members and technical experts, the activities of the 22 corporations are coordinated through the National Council of Corporations and subject to the supreme authority of the Ministry of Corporations. let see how their corporations are broke down here. The 22 corporations are... Eight corporations for cycles of production embracing agriculture, industry, and commerce. Uh, corporation of cereals, corporations of fruit, vegetables, flowers, corporation of viticulture and wine, corporation of sugar, beet and sugar, corporation of edible oil, corporation corporation of livestock and fisheries, corporations of forestry, lumber and wood, and eight corporations of textiles. Eight corporations for cycles producing Cycles of production embracing industry and commerce. So, Corporation of Metal and Engineering, Corporation of Chemical Trades, Corporation of Clothing Trades, Corporations of Printing, Publishing, and Paper, Corporation of Building Trades and Housing, Corporation of Water, Gas, and Electricity, Corporation of Mining and Quarrying, Corporation of Glassware and Pottery. Six corporations covering occupations productive of services corporation of the arts and professions consuming four sections legal professions medical professions technical professions the arts corporations of inland transports comprising four sections railways tramways and the inland navigation transports by motor traffic auxiliaries communications by telephone corporation of sea and air transports corporation of hotel industry corporation of credit and insurance comprising three sections bank savings banks and public institutions insurance and lastly the corporation of entertainments with the classification of the 22 corporations the description of the syndical organization of the fascist state is finally complete looked at in its totality this organization appears as a hierarchical arrangement which proceeds from the local syndicates through the national federations the nine general confederations and 22 corporations, the National Council of Corporations, and the Ministry of Corporations, in a continuously ascending series of attributes, of attributes, duties, and powers, and in a continuously widening sphere of tasks and influence, duplicating in its economic order the greater social hierarchical arrangement of the fascist nation and the fascist state as a whole. That brings us to the end of the economic section of this book and thus the end of this video which set out to explain some of the mentality and the functioning setup of fascist economics, all with the ideal of unifying, not erasing classes, not having classes at each other's throats, but unifying the classes in the direction of a greater destiny, a greater shared destiny. For further reading, The Philosophy of Fascism by Mario Palmari. Let's get into the Charter of Labor of Fascist Italy. This charter explains not only the working mechanics of the economic system in Fascist Italy, but it also highlights the third position philosophy, intertwined not only with the economics of a nation, but practically in every sphere of it. And for this we once again pull from Paul Enzig's fine book, The Economic Foundations of Fascism. Article 1. The Italian nation is an organism possessing a purpose, a life, and instruments of action superior to those possessed by the individuals or groups of individuals who compose it. The nation is a moral, political, and economic unity integrally embodied in the fascist state. From the very first article, The philosophy of the fascist state is laid out. The third position thought of the nation being an organism possessing a purpose, a life. Everything else is an instrument or a tool. Government, education, economy are instruments of action to fulfill the purpose and enhance the life of the nation. Article 2. Labor in all its manifestations, whether mental, technical, or manual is a social duty. It is by virtue of this fact and by virtue of this fact alone that labor falls within the purview of the state. When considered from a national point of view, production in its manifold forms constitutes a unity, its many objectives coinciding and being generally definable as the well-being of those who produce and the development of national power. So you are in an actual sense a contributing part in fulfilling the national purpose and enhancing the life of yourself and your fellow citizen. As opposed to today's capitalism where in general your labor is largely to fulfill basic needs and some material wants while enhancing the wealth of a soulless corporate conglomerate. Article 3. Organization, whether by trades or by syndicates, is unrestricted, but only the syndicate legally recognized by the state and subject to state control is empowered. To legally represent the particular division of employers or employees for which it has been formed, to protect the interests of these as against the state or as against other trade organizations, To negotiate collective labor contracts, binding upon all those engaged in the branch in question, to levy assessments and to exercise in connection with the branch specified functions of public support. Article 4. The collective labor contract gives concrete expression to the common interest of the various elements of production, capital, and labor by reconciling conflicting interests of employees and subordinating these to the higher interest of production at large. Article 5. The labor court is an organ through which the state acts in settling labor controversies, whether they rise in connection with observances of rules or agreements already made or in connection with new conditions to be fixed for labor. So trade unions and syndicates can organize, But only those who are recognized by the state, meaning they have officially accepted uh, what is placed forth in Article 1, where labor is mediated by the state, can go into labor courts over disagreements with management or even the state itself. Article 6. The trade associations, legally recognized, guarantee equality before the law to the employers and employees alike. They maintain discipline in labor and production and promote measures of efficiency in both. The corporations constitute the unifying organization of the elements of production, capital and labor, and represent the common interest of them all. By virtue of this joint representation, and since the interests of production are interests of the nation, the corporations are recognized by law as organs of the state. So it is all intertwined. And this is why, underneath third position philosophy and the economics that come out of third position philosophy, A multinational conglomerates, A, would have a very hard time even existing in a country that practices third position philosophy, but more so, uh, organizations and corporations could never reach a state of power to where they influence or control the state, as you often get in democracies or republics or any other system that allows corporations to feed on the citizenry in the name of profit. Article 7. The corporate state regards private initiative in the field of production as the most useful and efficient instrument for furthering the interest of the nation. Since private enterprise is a function of import to the nation, its management is responsible to the state for general policies of production. So once again, not crippling private business or even private initiative. Uh, That's often a misconception of third position economics. From the fact that the elements of production, labor and capital, are cooperators in a common enterprise, reciprocal rights and duties devolve upon them. The employee, whether laborer, clerk or skilled worksman, is an active partner in the economic enterprise, the management of which belongs to the employer who shoulders the responsibility for it. And this is a theme you'll see throughout the articles. Stressing, it is an active partnership between employer and employee. Article 8. Trade associations of employers are under obligation to increase business, to improve quality of output, and to reduce the costs in every possible way. The organizations representing practitioners of the liberal profession or of the arts and the associations of state employees are work together for furthering the interests of science, letters, and the arts, for improving the quality of production, and for realizing the moral ideals of the corporate organization of the state. Article 9. The state intervenes in economic production only in cases where private initiative is lacking or insufficient, or where political interests of the state are involved. Such intervention may take the form of supervision, Of promotion or of direct management so generally not central planning but an oversight that is motivated by ethics and an expectation of production and only stepping in where there is a violation of either and to what extent they step in depends on the situation article 10 in labor controversies involving groups there can be no recourse to the labor court until the corporation has exhausted itself for adjustment in controversies involving individuals in connection with applications or interpretations of collective contracts, the trade associations are empowered to offer their mediation for settlements. Jurisdiction in such controversies belong to the ordinary labor courts supplemented by the referees appointed by the trade association concerned. So if an individual worker has a problem with the employer or a fellow employee, first Uh, The trade union tries to deal with it, where the conversation is with the grievant and either with the employer or the employee in question, and the trade union reps. If they cannot reach an agreement, then it goes to the local labor court, where the grievant and the accused meet before a local government representative. If that does not work, then it goes up the ladder to a national labor court, and they deal with the matter. Article 11. The trade associations are required to regulate by collective contracts labor relations between the employers and the employees whom they represent. The collective contract is made between associations of primary grade under the guidance and with the approval of the central organizations, with their provision that the association of the higher grade may make amendments in cases specified in the constitutions of the associations or by law. All collective labor contracts must, under penalty of nullity, contain specific statements of the rules governing discipline of trial periods of the amounts and manner of payment of wages of schedules of working hours. An obvious intent to try to make terms clear as possible in the contract between the employer and the employee. Article 12. The operation of the syndicates, the mediation of the corporations, and the decisions of the labor court guarantee correspondence between wages and the normal demands of living, the possibilities of production, and the yield from labor. The fixing of wages is withdrawn from any general rule and entrusted to agreements between parties in their collective contracts. Article 13. Losses occasioned by business crises and by variations of exchange must be equitably divided between the elements of production, capital, and labor. Statistics relating to conditions of production and labor, to variations of exchange, to changes in standards of living, as issued by the various governmental departments, by the Central Bureau of Statistics, and by the legally recognized trade associations and as coordinated and elaborated by the ministry of corporations will constitute the criteria for adjusting the interest of the various branches of trade and of harmonizing the interest of various classes with those of other classes vis-a-vis of each other and of the higher interest of production in general as it would be written in any contract between the employee and the employer when business is good there would surely be a financial benefit for both the employer and the employee. But at the same time, when business had slowed down, both the employer and employee would be subject to a financial penalty. And if things did not improve or got worse, the state would step in to find solutions, be it helping with production problems, price fixing, vouchers to workers, etc. Once again, the employee and the employer are invested in the business together. For better and worse. Article 14. When wages are paid on the basis of piecework and payments are made in intervals greater than two weeks, suitable weekly or bi weekly accountings must be furnished. Night work not compensated in regular periodical shifts must be paid for by some percentage in addition to the regular daily wage. When wages are based on piecework, piece payments must be so fixed that the faithful worker of average productive ability may have a chance to earn a minimum in excess of the basic wage. Once again, it was not free market capitalism that created the minimum wage, night shift differences, paid holidays, overtime pay, etc. We can go on. All of these and much more came through government action, and all were common in fascist ideologies. Despite if it was in Europe, South America, the Middle East, it didn't matter. It was in every fascist organization, every group that adopted a third position philosophy. All were persistent in protecting the worker. Article 15. The employee is entitled to a weekly holiday falling on Sundays. Collective contracts will apply this principle so far as it is compatible with existing laws, and with the technical requirements of the enterprise concerned, and within the same limits, they will aim to respect civil and religious solemnities in accord with local traditions. Working hours must be scrupulously and earnestly observed by employees. Article 16 After a year of uninterrupted service, the employee in enterprises that function the year-round is entitled to an annual vacation with wages. So, paid vacation. Article 17. In concerns functioning throughout the year, the employee is entitled, in case of discharge through no fault of his own, to a compensation proportioned to his years of service. Similar compensation is likewise due in the case of death. So unemployment pay, but in the sense of, if you worked at a factory and you were laid off for some reason, uh, that was not your own fault. A factor in your unemployment compensation would be how many years you had worked for the company. How many years you had invested in that company would also be a part of what you're being paid while you're on unemployment through them. I do like something about that. Like loyalty repaid with sort of financial loyalty. Article 18. Transfers of ownership of concerns offering steady work do not affect labor contracts, and the employees of such concerns retain all their rights and claims against the new proprietors. Likewise, the illness of an employee, not in excess of a specified duration, does not cancel the labor contract. Call to service in the Army, Navy, or in the fascist militias, which were voluntary militia for national safety, does not constitute valid cause for dismissal. So even with new owners, you keep the old deal. Plus, you have sick leave. Also, not a creation of free market capitalism. Uh, That must be respected, but up to a realistic point, of course. Article 19. Infractions of discipline on the part of employees and acts disturbing to the normal functioning of a concern are punished. According to the seriousness of the offense, by fine, by suspension, or in grave cases, by immediate discharge without compensation. The cases in which the employer may impose the respective penalties of fine, suspension, or discharge without compensation must be specified. So there's always accountability in this system, or at least they're striving for accountability. Article 20. The employee newly hired is subject to a trial period during which there is a reciprocal right to cancel the labor contract, the employee in such case being entitled to wages only for the time of actual service. So a probation period gives the employer a fair look at the person to see if he will be a positive functioning part of the company. Article 21. The collective labor contract extends its benefits and its discipline to home workers as well. Special regulations are to be promulgated by the state to assure proper hygienic conditions for home labor. So I would imagine a stay-at-home mom, amongst other things, would fall subject to that. Which is good, because as it states, you reap the benefits as well. Article 22, the the state has exclusive power to determine and control the factors governing employment and unemployment, since these are indices of the general conditions of production and labor. So, of course, whenever push comes to shove, the state has its say, and not some multinational conglomerate. Article 23. Employment bureaus are to be managed by the corporations through commissions having equal representation of employers and employees. Employers are required to practice selection among workers with the right of choice among the various registrants, giving preference, however, to such as are the members of the fascist party and of fascist syndicates and to priority of registration. Yeah, so obviously active fascist members are going to get the first place in line. Uh, That goes without saying. And if anyone isn't quite sure how these corporations are set up, uh, linked in the description area of this video will be the video I did on corporatism, which was also taken from this book, The Economic Foundations of Fascism. Article 24, the trade association of workers are required to practice selection among workers with a view to constant improvement in the technical skill and the moral character of the personnel, fascist tenets at its core, constant improvement and of good character of keep continuing to build good character is what is looked for not only the in the employee but also in the employer and in all aspects of the society constant improvement and technical skill and the moral character of a person soulless capitalism doesn't give a damn about the moral of your character as long as you punch the clock show up do your job contribute to the corporation uh, then go home they don't give a shit about the technical skills you could be improving on, or to help or encourage the content of your character. Article 25, the corporations must supervise the observance of the laws governing safety, accident prevention, and sanitation by the individuals subject to the central organization of associations. So follow the safety laws, don't cut corners. Article 26, insurance is another manifestation of the principle of collaboration. Employers and employees must bear proportionate shares of such burdens. The state, working through the corporations and the trade associations, will strive to coordinate and unify, as far as is possible, the agencies and the system of insurance. Now you see a common theme in all these articles and the larger goal at hand, to strengthen the relationship of the employer and employee not pit them against each other or press one while rewarding the other. Both employer and employee benefit at good times and both share the struggle during the bad. Both contribute to the insurance and other programs, building the bond of investing together contributing together, reaping rewards together, and even side by side in struggle if need be. Third position thought does not split the nation over economics and material wants, but rather unifies it by creating an environment of mutual respect and a common purpose. Article 27, the fascist state is working a for improvements in accident insurance, B, for improvements and extensions of maternity insurance. C, for insurance against professional diseases and tuberculosis as a step towards general insurance against illness in general. D, for improvements in insurance on involuntary unemployment. E, for the adoption of special forms of endowment insurance for young workers. Article 28. Protection of the interest of employees and legal and administrative problems arising in connection with accidents and other forms of social insurance devolves upon the associations which represent them. Collective labor contracts will provide, where technically possible, for the establishment of mutual funds for insurance against illness such funds to consist of contributions from employers and employees and to be administrated by representatives of both classes under the general supervision of the corporations. Article 29. The trade associations have the right and the duty to provide relief for the workers they represent, whether these be members or non-members. Such functions of relief must be exercised directly by committees of the associations themselves and must not be delegated to other institutions or corporations, save for purposes of a general character which transcend the particular interests of the branch of production concerned. And finally, Article 30, Training and education, especially technical training of workers they represent, whether they be members or non-members, is one of the principal duties of trade associations. The associations must lend their support to the national institutes which deal with the recreation and free time and to other enterprises of education. Investing in building a more educated worker and thus a better man, as shown in the repetitive mentions in the Charter of Labor, When it comes to the duty of trade unions and employers to contribute to educate the worker in the advancement in their respective fields, no student loans, no debt, just a system invested in the people. Because the third position is revolutionary in that sense where it continually seeks to improve people and thus improve the nation as a whole in doing so. And that was the Italian fascist charter of labor once again found in Paul Inzig's fine book, The Economic Foundations of Fascism. From the charter, we can see that third position economics is merely a tool or a function used to achieve goals for both the collective and for the individuals, rather than simply just the end upon itself, as is the case with soulless capitalism. Not too long ago, I was linked Numerous articles from German philosopher Martin Heidegger dealing with his enthusiasm and support of National Socialism. Now, I had not read these before, but one of these articles spoke to the core of why I hold the political views I do. So, firstly, you can check out the Tumblr of the guy who gave me, who linked me to these articles. It's a very good Tumblr entitled, The Will to Oligarchy. It's visually stimulating, entertaining, poetic, deep, philosophical, barbaric, and brutal. Everything a cultured thug should be. So let's get into this Heidegger article. And at the core of what he's speaking about here is something I I tried to approach in my video, It's Star Trek or Idiocracy. Link in the description to that as well. But Heidegger, being who he was, explained it so much more profoundly. So we'll look at his words. First, put a little context to this article. This was about, he was writing an article in support of Hitler's suggestion of Germany removing themselves from the League of Nations. And before a vote was taken, Heidegger, amongst many other supporters, put out material out there to explain why Hitler was right and the German people voted 95% to remove themselves from uh, the League of Nations. So it it was the right if you will, dated November 11th, 1933 declaration of support for Adolf Hitler and the national socialist state. He goes on about the fundamentals of why they should remove themselves and how it's not distancing themselves from the nation, but actually preserving themselves and stand side by side with the nations. And then he gets to a core of, of, of this movement, of this idea he sees growing, and, and what he sees positive about it. However, the will to self-responsibility is not only the basic law of the people's existence, it is also the fundamental event in the bringing about of a people's national socialist state. From this will to self-responsibility, every effort, be it humble or grand, of each social and occupational group assumes its necessary and predestined place in the social order. The labor of various groups supports and strengthens the living framework of the state. Labor reconquers for the people its rootedness. Labor places the state as the reality of the people into the field of action of all essential forces of human being. And and here's where we really get down to it. Here this is exactly why I hold the political views I hold. It's this core element of it. The nation is winning back the truth of its existence. For the truth is a revelation of that which makes people confident, lucid, and strong in actions and knowledge. The genuine will to know arises from such truth. And this will to know circumscribes the right to know. And from there, finally, the limits are measured out, within which give genuine questioning and research must legitimize and prove themselves. Such is the origin of the Wissenschaft, which is constrained by the necessity of a self-responsible Volkish existence. And the Wissenschaft is essentially the pursuit of, of of knowledge and understanding in all fields. It's essentially this Faustian drive. Is thus the passion to educate that has been restrained by this necessity, the passion to want to know in order to make knowing, to be knowing, however, means to be master of things in clarity and to be resolved in action. We have declared our independence from the idol of thought that is without foundation and power. We see the end of the philosophy that serves such thought. We are certain that the clear hardness and the sure steady competency of unyielding simple questioning about the essence of being are returning for the courage either to grow or to be destroyed in the confrontation with the being, which is the first form of courage, is the innermost motive for questioning. For courage lures one forward. Courage frees itself from what has been up till now. Courage risks the unaccustomed and the incalculable. For us, questioning is not the unconstrained play of curiosity nor is questioning the stubborn insistence of doubt at any price. For us, questioning means exposing oneself to the sublimity of things and their laws. It means not closing oneself off to the terror of the untamed and to the confusion of darkness. To be sure, it is for the sake of this questioning that we question and not to serve those who have grown tired of their complacent yearning for comfortable answers. We know the courage to question, to experience the abysses of existence and to endure the abysses of existence is in itself already a higher answer than any of the all too cheap answers afforded by artificial systems of thought. And so we to whom the preservation of our people's will to know shall in the future be entrusted, declare, the National Socialist Revolution is not merely the assumption of power as it exists presently in the state by another party, or a party grown sufficiently large in number to be able to do so. Rather, this revolution is bringing about the total transformation of our German existence. From now on, each and everything demands decision, and every deed demands responsibility. Of this we are certain. If the will to self-responsibility becomes the law that governs the coexistence of nations, then each people can and must be the master who instructs every other people in the riches and strength Of all the great deeds and works of human being the quest that is greater than the individual life the quest to know to understand on a societal level is the same thing Heidegger is anticipating with the birth of a new soul in Germany this is the Faustian will in man to explore to dominate to conquer to learn to understand to ask even more Lastly, we'll finish with a little explanation of the Faustian ideal from Oswald Spangler, from Decline of the West. He says, We have the Faustian soul, whose prime symbol is pure and limitless space, and whose body is the Western culture that blossomed forth, the love of wild nature, the mysterious compassion, the ineffable sense of forsakenness, It is all Faustian and only Faustian. Every one of us knows it. The motive returns with all its profundity in the Easter scene. A longing, pure and not to be described, drove me to wander over the woods and fields. And in the midst of abundant tears, I felt a world arise and live for me. This is part three of a three-part series based on the Mario Palmieri book, The Philosophy of Fascism. Part one dealt with fascism as a philosophy. Part two dealt with fascism as a political and economic organization. And part three will deal with fascism as a historical process. The historical background of fascism. Three main spiritual forces have shaped the soul of the culture of the Western world the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Revolution. The Renaissance, releasing all the pent-up energy accumulated within the inner depths of being through a long succession of unarticulated centuries, gave birth to the individual's consciousness of his individuality. The Reformation, testing and proving the right of the individual's freedom of belief, brought about the independence of the individual's spiritual life from the constraints of the church the revolution proclaiming and asserting that liberty is not the privilege of a few men but the inalienable right of every man brought about the realization of those conditions which made possible the final triumph of individualism and the initial decay of all human institutions italy which experienced the full impact of the renaissance but was left out of the mainstream of the Reformation and only indirectly felt the consequences of the Revolution. Cannot be said, therefore, to be as representative of this culture as other nations, which experienced to their fullest extent the action of these three forces mentioned above. But this evidence becomes well nigh inaccurable when, from the general consideration of the three determining forces, we pass to the particular consideration of the instruments created by these forces in the final period of realization of their action. These instruments can be briefly stated to be intellectual means, a philosophy which under the various names of materialism, naturalism, realism, etc, furnished man, furnished man with a mechanistic view of the world and his life, a view which had no place for such intangible things as God, the soul and the ideals. Social means a liberal doctrine, which predicated upon the idea of Liberty as a means of providing a fuller life to all the people made of this Liberty, the privilege of a small class only political means the institution of parliamentary democracy, which founded on the belief that the realization of democracy in politics is compatible with social and economic inequality lost all foundation when this belief was thoroughly disapproved by the actual course of human events. And economic means, the institution of capitalism, which born out of the exploitation of the working class, became in the end the most effective means of domination and power of the capitalist class. In the ultimate analysis, the triumph of individualism as a philosophy and a way of life rests upon the adequacy of these means to fulfill the purpose for which they were devised. Benedito Croce expresses the sentiment of all Italians when he says, the new vision saw no longer the true and the whole man in whom the struggle between spirit and body must be fought out, but man reduced to the level of an animal, always and only body and flesh, in spite of certain semblances and false appearances of generous impulses, and lofty yearnings, which, if scrutinized, revealed themselves as nervous disturbances, or frankly, as the result, neurasthenia, far out of sight, was placed not the real mystery, the sacred mystery, which contains within it all these values whose secret it does not reveal, but our lack of knowledge, our more or less provisional ignorance, with the assumption that perhaps one day, some combination of atoms or the like will be found, which explains everything and enable us to produce in the laboratory life with all its products commonly called spiritual. So this is a, a big pushback against the whole Enlightenment philosophy. And Paul Palmari is specifically speaking about things like uh, the Renaissance and um, the Reformation, also alluding to the French Revolution. These things that were thought to free man more. Instead, the argument is being made that has enslaved man to his passions, because once everything greater worth uh, the church, the king, the way of life, of a culture, uh, of a tradition, of a nation of people existing thousands of years, that that all got replaced with essentially the individual's drive to make himself, quote unquote, happy and it became about pursuing a life that feeds the pleasure senses, and then measuring your life upon how many of these pleasure senses can be satisfied, which is an accurate critique of capitalism and individualism that gets lost on a lot of people who support these economic and political philosophies. They think they are truly free to blaze their own path, but truly the merchant class knows as we've referenced on this channel with works uh, like um, Edward Bernays' Propaganda, we dug into, and Gustave Le Bon's uh, The Psychology of the Crowd, that the mercantile class knows how to exploit people and get them to purchase whatever products uh, they desire people to live their life working for just to purchase because they tie these products into their pleasure senses. And hence why, you know, many commercials are built around sex and humor and really things that speak to not only the pleasure senses, but what Freud coined as the id, the primitive self. We go on. If a materialistic philosophy is therefore necessary basis for the triumph of individualism, and that such is the case, nobody can deny it, the triumph could never be complete in Italy if brought to conclusion, could never be everlasting. So, as Palmari will go on to explain, he thinks because certain steps were not taken in Italy, that the extreme individualism that is seen throughout Western Europe, especially manifesting after the Enlightenment period, could not uh, take part in Italy, and if it did take part in Italy, it wouldn't be to the point that it is in the rest of Western Europe. It will suffice here to point out the peculiar experience of life of the Anglo-Saxon race, which led the Anglo-Saxon man to taste the forbidden fruit of freedom and to make of it an idol to worship, has not and could not have been duplicated in the life of the Italian race. The Italian man has always held that respect for authority has precedence over any desire for liberty. The words of Manzini on this question are definitive and worthy of reproduction and extent. On every side, the doubt has arisen of what advantage is liberty, of what advantage equality, which is in fact but the liberty of all. What is the free man but an activity, a force, to be put into motion? In what direction shall he move? As chance or caprice may direct? But that is not life. It is a mere succession of acts, a phenomena, of emissions. Of vitality without bond relation or continuity it is anarchy the liberty of the one will inevitably clash with the liberty of others constant strife will arise between individual and individual with consequent loss of force and waste of the productive faculties vouchsafed to us faculties which we are bound to regard as sacred the liberty of all if ungoverned by any general directing law will but lead to a state of warfare among men, a warfare rendered all the more cruel and inexorable by the virtual equality of the antagonists. Fascism means in fact, the return to order, to authority, to law, the return to the Roman conception of human society, conception, which those centuries of oblivion could obscure, but never efface. face. Fascism is, in other words, intimately connected to Rome. Its mission is the continuation of the mission of Rome. Its heritage is the legacy of Rome. Empire, in the general accepted meaning, is a political organization whose foundation is always a territorial extension. Empire, in the fascist meaning of the word, denotes instead that unification of peoples and nations brought about by the triumph of a universal ideal. Hence, the seat of empire is necessarily there where the realization of this universal idea takes place. The hero as leader. The age of hero worship appears to us most strange and remote. Indeed, the very possibility of a hero appearing in our midst is denied with a vehemence and finality which reveal our incapacity to understand the true essence of heroism. Everything points, in other words, to the low state to which has fallen the cult and practice of the heroic in man. But if the age of the hero worship is past forever, it is not true that heroes may not appear in our midst. That reminds me of the Yukio Mishima quote from sun and steel that says, the cynicism that regards all hero worship as comical is always shadowed by a sense of physical inferiority. As a god or prophet as a saint or warrior as a poet or king under whatever aspect they might have appeared on this earth all heroes have always delivered and for that matter will ever deliver the same message to mankind that man lives a true human life only when his life is devoted to and if necessary sacrificed for the triumph Of an ideal and that only by living such a way can he ever find happiness on this earth the hero as leader to acknowledge that a man in our midst a man of flesh and bone with our vices and virtues with our strengths and weaknesses with our aspirations and our dreams is truly a hero the hero as leader we must ask of him first of all and above all that through his speech, his actions, his influence, his example, his whole life, in short, he lived the very message he is delivering to us. But our skeptical brethren, little men without vision, without faith, without belief, ask for pragmatic proof of his right to our admiration, if not to our worship. Such proof is evidently not needed by those who can recognize the hero when they see him but it is sorely needed by those aware of the bread they eat, but blind to the reality of the unseen. The only merit of Mussolini, the truly great merit of this man, is that he took up the challenge of communism and he dared, and in daring, he has given to the world the incomparable gift of a new type of life. A type of life which places heroism, asceticism, martyrdom, and death above comfort, cowardice, and safety, and well-being. A type of life acknowledging the unity which is at the root of life. Stressing the invisible tie which binds together the destinies of all men. A type of life which recognizes the need of man's worship of those intangible things called the ideals of the fatherland, the state, the church, and the family. A type of life finally in which authority, responsibility, and duty take the place of that negative form of liberty which is the anathema of the only form of liberty worth living and dying for, the liberty of the spirit. In so doing, in offering the people hardships, suffering, privations and wants in place of ease, comfort, abundance and riches, Mussolini is fulfilling the prophecies of all the great souls of the 19th century who preached the new way of life but found none who can translate it into fact. He is fulfilling, for instance, the prophecy of Nietzsche, who in an age sick with all the diseases of the soul, rises like a prophet of the old to preach the heroic life, the dangerous life, the ascetic life, the spiritual life. Of Nietzsche, who in an age resounding with the battle cry of democracy disdainfully remarks, once the spirit was God, then it became man, And now, it even becometh the populace. Of Nietzsche, who in an age, replete with hypocrisy, false pretenses, and make-believe, let Zarathustra wander through the world to announce the true life, the sincere life, the genuine life. Of Nietzsche, finally, who in an age which believes that the most desirable aim of human life is to live according to nature, has the courage to say, Imagine to yourselves a being like nature, boundlessly extravagant, boundlessly indifferent, without purpose or consideration, without pity or justice, at once fruitful and barren and uncertain. Imagine to yourselves indifference as a power. How could you live in accordance with such indifference? The Fascist Revolution. A fundamental characteristic of the communist way is, instead, the emphasis placed on materialistic historic determinism as the true agent conditioning the aspects and the development of human life. By restricting the motives of human actions to economic motives only, by further restricting these economic motives to class struggle, Karl Marx was able to state, The history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. As opposed to that, third position mentality is destroy obsolete institutions. Educate the people to see higher things in life than materialistic aims. Organize society on a basis of cooperation, hierarchy, and harmony. Let an elite of aristocratic spirits lead society onward. Let the goal of man be to achieve spiritual greatness, not wealth. These are the means which the fascist revolution has found and is attempting to use. The fascist revolution, which is nonetheless a revolution because its aims are being achieved peacefully, has only begun. Its course will extend perhaps over the whole span of the 20th century. It certainly is not going to end before the final debacle of individualism and its offspring. A revolution, said Manzini, is the passage of an idea from theory to practice. It is to make such realization possible that the fascist revolution has devised such radical means as the destruction of all obsolete institutions. Of all obsolete institutions, the capitalist system is the most obsolete of all. A series of destructive forces has made of such An anarchistic thing in our times and in our form of society that no human effort will ever be able to salvage it the first destructive force originates within the system itself from the contradiction existing between the fact that the capitalist system is a social organism of production and the purpose of men is to make of it individual means of personal profit The second is a force originated by those outside agents called machines which displacing human labor can create a surplus of commodities without creating the means for disposing of it, that is, without correspondingly increasing but rather actually decreasing the number of salaried workers Needed for the production and consumption of these commodities. The third is a force originated by the sad truth that capitalism can thrive only through the exploitation of the many for the few. A force, therefore, eminently antisocial and retrogressive. Finally, the growth of large trusts and monopolies, of absentee ownership of the factors and production of organizations requiring ever-expanding markets for the continuity of their existence, of economic private interests conflicting with the wider interests of the nation as a whole, and of an international fraternity controlling the destinies of men and nations alike, competes in a series of destructive forces which have made the capitalist system the most obsolete thing of our days. The Fascist Revolution was started and is now in progress for the furtherance of one aim, the realization of a new social order founded on everlasting life-inspiring ideals. The Fascist Revolution is teaching us that human history is more than the story of class struggle. It is teaching us also that there is a way to end the war of the classes, and that this way is found in placing all classes under the protection the aegis and the discipline of the state. The fascist revolution is teaching us that exploitation of one class by another is not compatible with social justice and must be replaced therefore by cooperation of the various classes for their own good and for the good of the nation as a whole. The fascist revolution is teaching us that inasmuch as production is national in character All surplus value derived from the play of productive forces has a national significance and importance and must not be used therefore to enrich private individuals and further the ends of private interests the fascist revolution is teaching us that the times cry out loud for a thorough revision of the principles of production It is teaching us that there must be national planning, not individual planning of the amount of things produced, and that furthermore, there must be national planning of its distribution and apportionating among the various classes of society. Finally, if in the realm of economics it announces the doom of capitalism, the fascist revolution cannot fail at the same time to express itself as a revolt against all other aspects of individualism In the fife of man. The fascist revolution is thus a revolt against liberalism in social theory and social practice, against democracy and politics, against materialism and its derivatives in philosophy. But a revolution is always something more than a revolt. A revolt can destroy, it cannot build. A revolution instead creates always new values, is always a fruitful harbinger of a new order of things. A religion or philosophy lies at the base of every revolution, said Manzini. The idealistic philosophy which lies at the base of the fascist revolution makes of it something more than a revolt, something constructive, creative, spiritual. It is this idealistic philosophy which is responsible for the realization of the corporative system replacing the now so utterly obsolete capitalistic system which is responsible for that hierarchical organization of society replacing the miserably antiquated democratic organization, which is responsible for the gospel of duty as the basis of social life and the gospel of asceticism and heroism as a basis of individual life. To achieve that stage of life where we can confidently state that we have been able to merge our individuality within the social organism to achieve it through hard struggle, to achieve it against our own will, to suffer gladly misery, martyrdom, and death for its sake. That is the teaching, the purpose, and the goal of the fascist revolution. And Palmari ends there, and that brings us to the end of the three-video breakdown on the book, The Philosophy of Fascism. So as Palmari finished with the concepts of fascist revolution, he ends strongly on the ideal that life is struggle and life is indeed struggle and man should be unified in that struggle suggested reading the philosophy of fascism by Mario Palmari. Today, Zarathustra would have to update his message by downgrading man into male, as the descent of man from Nietzsche's era has only continued. In his time, society still, at the very least, ran off the fumes of great men of the past. Today, we have a whole new fuel altogether, that of femininity which has fueled men into becoming males. A male, which is much like the shadows on the wall of Plato's cave, just mere imitations of man. We must first assent to the status of man before we are even to reach the path of overman. Whether we are devolving from Hyperboreans or evolving from monkeys matters not. What matters is we are in a dark age, and I don't just mean civilization as a whole. I mean us as individuals. We are in a self-spiritual dark age. There are many who believe that life works in cycles, and that only the changing of these different ages can induce change. Au moment où nous traversons l'âge <inaudible> obscur dont parle la tradition hindoue. quel est à votre avis le remède ou les remèdes à cette dissolution de la civilisation actuelle? Réponse tout à fait négative. Il n'y a rien à faire. I disagree with this. I believe action induces the change and we have seen man has been able to harness this action into change many of times throughout history. Our society is a macro expression of our collective selves. So if we deem society sick, it means we are also sick. Which means to cure society, we must first cure ourselves. If we want to live in a golden age, we must exercise the dark age within us. When man seeks to improve at anything he uses tools of improvement. For example if you're going to be tested on a subject and if you wanted to succeed you would study the subject thoroughly reading writing processing the information. These are your tools of improvement just as if you were an athlete of a sport The time spent physically training and studying strategy would be your tools of improvement. So it is with self-betterment. You simply just can't become a better man. You must work at improving yourself and use tools of improvement to get the desired results. Forcing your own personal golden age into the material world is no easy task. And while there are many fine works to be found out there that all help with self-betterment, these are the eight steps to a higher evolution. Eight tools of improvement to bring about a better you and in turn a better world. Complacency is cowardice. Action is just. If you demand more of yourself, you will have no other choice but to demand more of your surroundings number one idealism and self-discipline idealism being the belief in something greater a goal in life that extends outside of yourself is there anything metaphysical that you are truly willing to die for go hungry for live uncomfortably for sacrifice for probably not when you evaluate your values how high is your idealism idealism is our much-needed fuel of irrationalism that thrusts our rational selves forward into chaos and chaos brings about change the nihilist has nothing to live for but the idealist has everything to kill for. Our fanatical love of metaphysical ideals are crucial to manifesting thought into action. Make no mistake the search for true idealism is no easy task. Much too often people pick ideals like they do a pair of shoes. You must discover a belief that invokes real reaction within you real enough to have it consume your life we're taking the ideal from the meta and bringing it into the physical becomes obsession this is true functional idealism self-discipline being the key to everything good in you a control of your emotions passions weaknesses a true mastering and control of yourself Discipline is the closest thing that you can achieve to real freedom. With discipline, you are free from your lower instincts, which bind you with primitive urges. Discipline can be improved like a physical muscle. The more you say no, the more it grows. But discipline is not found in the absolute or in the abstinence, but rather in the moderation To completely indulge yourself is a lack of self-control. But to completely abstain is fear of yourself. Discipline is found in the happy medium, true control of self. Through discipline, you are free to pursue your higher self. Discipline is the foundation of all self-improvement. Number two physical and mental purity. Do not gorge on junk food or junk for your mind. If you sabotage yourself by flooding your body with toxins from processed shit foods or visual toxins from junk television you are depurifying body and mind. Your body and mind cannot perform at its highest potential when it is polluted. So that means less Cheetos and soda, more spinach and chicken, less porn and reality television, and more beneficial reading and self-contemplation. Only by fueling your mind and your body properly can you hope to get the best results out of yourself. These harmful but pleasurable sensations found in food and entertainments are provided for you at gluttonous proportions because they help restrain you. Break free of the imposed restraints by purifying yourself. If you take care of your body and mind, your body and mind will take care of you. Number three, physical exercise for physical body. A part of purifying your body is strengthening your body through physical exercise. Physical exercise adds self-confidence, overall health improvement, longevity in life, and is aesthetically desired or respected by your peers. Physical exercise is your thought put into direct action. Your body becomes an upgraded vehicle now more effectively used to transport your ideals. Consistency in physical exercise is just one of the many self-battles one must endure through discipline to make themselves a better person. In the work Sun and Steel, Yukio Mishima equated the lack of physical masculine aesthetics in modern man as a result of their lack of virtuous masculinity within themselves. They dismiss what is better because they themselves are so far away from better. Physical strength is crucial in both the meta and physical aspects of your life. If your body is weak, your will is weak. And if your will is weak, you will remain in those satin bracelets that are currently shackled upon you. Number 4. Control of the breath and life energy Breath is your life energy. Without breath, there is no life within you. This life energy is an undefinable force within us that bonds us all to the conscious world. Mastering your breath is mastering yourself and your physiology. Mastering your breath is an ancient knowledge that even today has modern prophets preaching its virtues. There are many different methods and teachings in regards to breath control. Personally, I have found favorable results in the Wim Hof breathing methods and the nose breathing methods discussed in books like The Oxygen Advantage. While Wim Hof's methods and the nasal breathing methods advocated to induce nitric oxide throughout the body in oxygen advantage may contradict each other on surface value, one being solely focused on the nasal breathing, the other breathing by any means necessary I have found a happy medium that has produced noticeable positive improvement in control of my breath the pragmatic applications to life with breath control are countless everything from stressful situations to panic states and in high pressure moments all can be altered one way or another through breath Mastering our breath is getting more in touch with oneself self, which leads us to our fifth step. Number five, interiorization of the senses. Self-contemplation, long silent hours spent in solitude examining oneself, your behaviors, your habits, your feelings where why how do they come from where can you make them take you I have reached understandings about myself in a sober solitude whether in my cell or study I have found answers to myself randomly appearing out of nowhere while intoxicated on marijuana or hallucinogens I cherish every breakthrough Every one is a peeling back of yet another layer of that seemingly never-ending onion that is I. If there is truly someone I have no pity for in this life, it is those who do not take the time to explore themselves in hopes to understand themselves and their surroundings better. They are truly not worth living. I could provide quote after quote of great thinker through human existence on the importance of self-contemplation. Many of wise men has known we can never become who we aspire to be if we don't even know who we are. You must come to know yourself. You must at times force yourself into solitude and dive into that abyss that is you. Be aware of who you are so that no man can take advantage of your unawareness. Because people are deficient in inner contemplation, they have filled that void with material trinkets supplied by the very bastards that wish to keep you on the hamster wheel of nihilist materialism and servitude. Number six, one-point concentration. Every self-help book worth a damn will try to neuralistically program you to use mental tricks to rely on them so that they help you improve yourself. One of those mental tricks is one-point concentration. Do not overburden yourself with many battles but slay one dragon at a time. Achieve one goal after another. Before you can fly you must learn to crawl, walk, and run. And you can only do that by focusing on the next step ahead of you, not looking further down the road in disappointment because of the long path still ahead. No. Focus, advance, improve, and overcome. Number seven, cleansing of the subconscious mind. A cleansing of the subconscious mind will result in a healthier conscious mind we are often harassed with negativity from within ourselves that little negative voice that tells us we can't or we are unworthy that self-sabotage that always seems to appear when we are doing our best quieting and eventually silencing that inner negativity can be achieved methods like meditation yoga core imaging self-contemplation dream interpretations are among some of the ways to address your subconscious. How do you know if any of those tools of improvement are working on your subconscious? When that inner negativity goes from a voice to a whisper and when that positive voice becomes the dominating functioning inner dialogue then you know you have addressed and repaired the negativity swirling around your subconscious. Number eight, super consciousness. This is you at your true potential, physically, mentally, and spiritually, in tune with yourself, your surroundings, and your idealism. Now, is it mandatory for all eight steps to be mastered before change manifests in the world? Of course not. The climb to a better you is a never-ending ascent that is often met with a stumble here and there, but as long as you get back up and continue the climb, you continue to strive for a better you and a better world. As Yukio Mishima said in Runaway Horses, to be thus a man was to give constant proof of one's manliness. To be more a man today than yesterday more a man tomorrow than today. To be a man was to forge ever upward toward the peak of manhood, there to die amid the white snows of that peak. Simply acknowledging your faults, weaknesses, and lower self is enough to get the wheel of change in motion. But to deny your faults, ignore your weakness, and indulge your lower self is to fool yourself into believing you have already reached the peak. If you choose to remain ignorant of yourself, then it is here at your peak that you will remain.